everyone. Welcome to On the Environment, the podcast from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. I'm Alex Cashdan. And I'm Liz Borgay, and we're master's students at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. During the recent Yale Environmental Dialogue Symposium, environmental experts gathered to discuss innovative ideas to address today's greatest sustainability challenges. During the symposium, we were joined by William K. Riley, the former administrator of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency from 1989 to 1993. Mr. Riley spoke about the federal government of today compared to the EPA during his time as administrator and also shared why he is hopeful about the future of climate change. Thank you, Mr. Riley, sure. for, for joining us today for doing this podcast. So you were at the EPA at a time when the federal government functioned very differently from how it does today. Um, so what do you see as a solution to the current gridlock and specifically the uh, regressive environmental policy that we're seeing at the federal level? I think that EPA now has a administrator who has character, professionalism, and integrity, and that's a big start. They did not have that, in my view, for the first two years. Mm. I say that knowing that uh, he is doing things and will do things that I won't like. The methane rules withdrawal, the carbon clean power rules withdrawal, um, uh, maybe are parts of the waters of the United States. And I've told friends, uh, when you criticize him, do remember he's not Pruitt. He worked for me for four years, and um, he uh, is an honorable man. He is not a person that subscribes to the same philosophy that we do, and he works for a boss who would not allow him to be heard if he did. Mm. So that's the reality. One has to hope that he protects the agency against the worst effects of Pruitt's behavior, which is probably the ignoring of the senior political people. There was an event that took place that what I was told about when a lobbyist was meeting with uh, the head of the air, air staff, his name was Chris Grundler, and the secretary came in, and this was in, I think, in the summer of the first year of Pruitt's administration. The secretary came in and said, the administrator wants to see you right now. And he was stunned. And we got up and he broke off, broke off the meeting with the lobbyist and he said, I've never met the administrator, the head of the air staff. I mean, it's unthinkable to those of us who know how the agency works, but it's appalling. And uh, I was told that when the new administrator took office, he reissued what was called the fishbowl memo, transparency. He opened the third floor, which you, his floor, which you used to have to have a permit to get access to. He opened the um, corridor, was ceremonial corridor, where all of the portraits of the administrators, including me, are uh, displayed. And he called up his predecessor, 
Democratic predecessor, Gina McCarthy, and he said to her, I'm happy to organize the hanging of your portrait whenever you wish. We'll do it tomorrow if you want. We'll have a ceremony and do just whatever you think. Well, her Pruitt wouldn't schedule it. Petty. Mm -hmm. So you see, this is, a, this is a classy guy in many respects. And that's worth a lot. And when I went over, he, has, he asked me to see him, and I did. And as I went up, there was a, a woman who'd been there in my time. She was escorting me upstairs. She said, we're just thrilled because he's meeting with senior staff. He's communicated respect for them all and uh, that he will take them seriously. And so, I mean, thank, thank God for little things, right? It's, mm -hmm. not, it's not the place that I would the way I would run a place. Mm -hmm. but, but I think that's encouraging. So, and as I said upstairs, I think that you um, can take some encouragement from the fact that EPA professionals withstood two years of poor administration in the early 80s. I mean, a, a really determined deregulator. I've always thought it must be an odd disjunction in your life when you are a regulator, but you are a deregulator. <laughs> I don't know how that works. At any rate, I think that um, there's, I mean, what, faute de mieux, right? We have to make do with what we have. And I'm very pleased that there is someone now who will not persist in behaving the way his predecessor did. Mm -hmm. And given this agency and its cabinet, uh, um, Wheeler is the least of worries. So we have pre-planned questions, but I'm going to change it up a little bit, if that's okay. okay. Sure, of course. So earlier in your speech, you were talking about renaming the EPA to be called the Department of Planetary Restoration. Can you elaborate a little bit more about what you meant? I think several points need to be made on that. First of all, I said that a lot of people in the country despise EPA. That is not mentionable. It's very politically incorrect to say it, and I, don't, I, I cannot recall anybody who said it. But I'm hearing it so frequently. And I've had conversations with Bill Ruckelshaus, the first administrator. He's the one that told me about attitudes in the Northwest. Um, a woman who uh, is a prominent environmental official in Colorado told me about her family in Iowa turning against the agency and against the party, Democrats. Um, I'm on a board that uh, is involved with biomass in the Southeast. and. People are furious about the efforts to try to block new plant construction and jobs that go with it and all of that. I think we've got to address that issue. And to some extent, we have got to change the behaviors, probably, of the regulators. And I'm, I, I wish I knew exactly, exactly what uh, is, is the source of most complaints. I think ephemeral wetlands is something that when we try to regulate, it just really raises a lot of hackles. But I also think that EPA needs more to do. And if you look back at the period of the 70s and 80s, they did make billion dollar investments in wastewater treatment and they did it pretty efficiently. Uh, I think as I look at alternatives about who is going to undertake the infrastructure necessary to deal with climate change, who would do a more sensitive job to the environment than EPA? So I think part of the objective is to give them something additional to do that makes a lot more friends, frankly. And part of it is that I think they could rise to the job. So maybe going off of that, um, I know you were trained as an urban planner. Mm -hmm. 
what role do you see the built environment and sort of smart growth built environment solutions playing in the future as we address climate change? Might that be a, an economic oh. potential? Um, yeah. I think urban planning, urban organization, the management of traffic and transportation, uh, those are absolutely crucial. Land use generally, a huge amount of carbon is sequestered in the soils and there are ways to enhance their retention. I think we have to pay attention to them. But I'm so impressed by, uh, there's a man named Jan Gale who uh, was a traditionally trained urban planner. He was a Dane. He was head of urban planning for Den for Copenhagen. And he was brought up to believe in Le Corbusier, you know, big tall buildings surrounded by large green spaces and everything to accommodate the automobile. And his wife, who was a psychologist, said to him one day, I find it so interesting that you count cars, but you don't count people. He tells the story that that was an awakening for him. He went back to school and he changed his, his practices and Copenhagen became a place of large pedestrian plazas and much more designed for. And, that, and recently I heard that it was one of his staffers who met with Mayor Bloomberg, well, not that recently, but a few years ago, and said, said Times Square should really be a pedestrian zone. <clears throat> Bloomberg is quoted as having said, get me the data. Mm. Months later, they brought back the data showing that nine out of every 10 people in Times Square were walkers, were mm. pedestrians. And Bloomberg said, do it. And it got done. Um, the way that Bloomberg looked at the city of New York has always fascinated me. According to his chief planner, he said he saw six boroughs. He saw the five, and then he saw the coast, the shore. And he treated the shore as though it were a different borough. And my daughter, whom you saw upstairs, lives near the pier in Brooklyn. It totally remade the waterfront. Mm -hmm. And I've been down there on Sunday afternoons. They have a food fair and, and two soccer fields fit on that pier. And uh, it's just so beautiful and such a, a wonderful use of the waterfront. When I was EPA administrator, I toured the river and it was all full of junkyards and waste. It's just not true anymore. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but those kinds of things, enhanced recreation and also the green infrastructure, it suggests that the fact that the most intelligent way to manage sea level rise and certainly the floods that are likely to attend it is to accommodate it and allow places, parks, recreation areas, whatever, that you don't build on, that you permit to channel the water and to soak into the ground. Those are major urban objectives, I think, in the future ought to be. And versus what? Versus huge expenditures for for walls and retainers and stuff. We're going to do that too, but, but we can't do it everywhere. So I really believe in urban planning. And uh, I count my urban planning experience as very important to me. It, um, and particularly the, the focus on the person. Mm. Great. Well, um, kind of to close this out, um, we were thinking a lot about the Yale Environmental Dialogue that's going on now. Um, it's all about innovation. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, people still feel really pessimistic about climate action. Um, so what hope do you see for the future? Of well, you know, I have spoken to that issue in India and in Germany. And I think it's very important to communicate against the president who is has the biggest megaphone and the coal lobby in India, here's the president and they say, look, the Americans can't make it work. How could we? 
That is really pernicious. And it's also not true in a fundamental way. It's true we're not at the national level doing that much. But what the governors are doing in many states and the mayors are doing, the, the best example I remember, and, and it's been going on for quite a while, was the mayor of Chicago, who was not a noted greenie. He looked at Kyoto and for the first time got convinced that this is kind of a big deal. So he brought in his his buffins from the universities and said to them, what's the future that we should anticipate? Not how can we stop this, you know, what's the cause of it and all that. No, no debate about the causes, whether there's human agency, just let's, whatever it is. They told him, they said that rain is probably going to start falling the way it does in California, that is from November to April, and then you're not going to see any water at all. That's a very different rainy water climate. <clears throat> they invented permeable pavement. The, they do a lot of uh, reflective roofs. They told him that um, the trees that you're planting in the parks, 2,200 a year, the wrong trees. Illinois ash, maple, and uh, spruce are not going to make it. Mm. Alabama sweet gum will. It's a two plant zones changed since uh, just 25, 30 years ago, which is kind of fast. Okay, they did that. <clears throat> and flooding and so forth, arrangements for all of those. Uh, the hospitals were advised to triple their emergency room capacity because <clears throat> heat stroke will be much more common when instead of 15 days a year above 95 degrees, you get 45. <clears throat> These are very substantial changes. But there's a prudent mayor doing the planning that a prudent person should do. And it was not unpopular with anyone who raised ideological objections. And I think it's the, it's the direction we should go. And I think that's what the smart politicians are doing. They're not antagonizing the folks who really just can't stand to hear the word climate change or global warming. Uh, and, you know, there's, there are, what, 30-some states now that have mandatory renewable percentages in their electricity provision. Those are terrific. And Reggie has now got some new states. I think they now got New Jersey back in and they're getting Virginia. And um, the West Coast is trying to get Nevada. I don't know if they, they haven't done it yet, but into the Washington, Oregon, California mix. Those are really terrific. And that's going on. And there's a lot of stuff like that. And recycling, I think San Francisco is something like 80% recycling waste now. Those are terrific measures of progress. And they have nothing to do with the president. Great. Well, um, I guess on behalf of my listeners, um, thank you for making me feel a little more hopeful. And thank you for taking the time to join us today. Thank you. You're very welcome. That does it for today's episode. Thanks again to William Riley for speaking with us. You can find out more about the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy at envirocenter.yale.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter at Yale Enviro.